So uh, again, I want to come back and, and focus on the cross this morning um, because I think there's times, I, I mentioned it, I don't know, some weeks back that sometimes with a cross, especially in Western culture and especially where we are now at this time of humanity, the cross, that has, which is the Christian symbol, obviously, but we, the cross in some respects we, we've relegated it to just jewelry or something that hangs at the front of a room in a place called a sanctuary or other applications. And, and when we all see the cross, it's not that we're not mindful of what it stands for, but there's times that, that, that the impact of the cross gets lost. And when we start talking about that my, I have a vocation, that when I was born again, I wasn't just born again for me. The born again experience, even though it frees me of things, it, sets, it shifts my eternity, there's a lot of things that do come to me personally when Jesus comes into my life or came into your life. Those are all true. But it's not, the gospel is not to feed self. The gospel is about me becoming born again. Well, then if I'm born again, what am I born again to? I'm born again into a vocation. In the New Testament, it's, they use the term disciple. And for as much as I love and have continued to bring forth the idea of God is good and he's a good father and good papa and we use all these different expressions and, and how so many times in life God partners with us. He asked us, what is it that you want to do? We have these dialogues with him he, and, and we, all those are a part of our experience. But at the same time that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother at the same time that Yahweh is a good father that comes and envelops me in his love, puts his arms around me, heals me, does all these various things for me, he never ceases to be Lord. And so my, my interaction with him as my father doesn't look like this. He's my father. I'm his, I'm his son, but that doesn't make me equal in essence with him. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't be at this place where God becomes so familiar that it's all just touchy-feely and, yeah, whatever I want to do is fine because ultimately God just loves me and it'll be okay and everything, you know. God doesn't really have an opinion other than he just loves me. Well, he does have an opinion. Well, I take that back. I, I, I'm picking up where I left off. God doesn't have opinions. God is truth. He is the I am. And he's invited each of us into a relationship with the I am. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort because I get lost in my head sometimes. I know many of you don't experience that. 
Sometimes I'm lost for days. And it's very comforting to me that at some point, as my brain is trying to loop through whatever it is I'm obsessing on or trying to figure out or all that, that there is, this, there is always this place where the I am stands in front of me and invites me to himself. And for me, that settles my brain down. That brings me to a place of going, okay, I, this is where I live. God, you are good. You're incredibly good. Amen. And at the same time, you will correct me. You will discipline me. If you don't discipline me, discipline me, I'm not a son. But your, your discipline isn't wrathful. Your discipline isn't mean-spirited. You don't come to me and just smack me across the face and tell me to shut up. You, you come to me as the I am and invite me to understand something about me and something about you that I've been missing in my life. And when I come to that place of understanding, I step forward as a human being. I can't get there without his discipline. I'm thankful that he disciplines me. I'm thankful that he doesn't just say, well, whatever you want to do, Robert, it's all just all cool. It's all cool. Even on those places where I may not be willing to give him what he's asking for, as Ann was talking about with the building blocks, even in that place, it doesn't mean that because God is long-suffering, that he's okay with what I'm doing. It just means he's long-suffering with me until my heart can accept and can change the higher place he's calling me to. Because I I, maybe some of you are having a different experience than me. None of us start off at the 100%. You know, for many of us, just getting to the 30% level, we're going, yippee. God's intent is for us all to be at 100. That, that's the fullest of our potential. How long does it take me to get there? Depends how, how I want to address this. So... When we talk about the cross, when we come back to the cross, um, I think there, there's some things that I want us to focus on, and then, I, and then I'm going to give us some scriptures too as we kind of conclude today. So at the time that Christ stepped onto the earth, what was happening then? What, what, in, what world environment? And when I use the wor- term world, in, well, if I, and I use the term world, I'm using it in the Hebrew reference point where the Hebrew considered the world as far as I could see. So we've been given the ability now to see the whole earth from a satellite and go, yeah, it's big, it's round, it's this and that. Well, for the Hebrew, 
They didn't have any satellites. So as far as I could see, that was the world. So when I talk about what was going on in the world at the time that Christ stepped in, I'm talking about really the Roman Empire. What was happening here? So in the Roman Empire, we had both Roman citizens, we had slaves, and we had the subjugated people that had been taken by war. And that was the world that existed. Everything was under the control of Caesar. Caesar was considered the son of God. Roma, his mother, the goddess Roma, and then Caesar was the embodiment or the earthly son of God. That's, what people, that's how people thought. We were in a, it was a polytheistic. We had gods all over the place. And we had gods that didn't get along with each other. And we had gods that didn't get along with humans. We had gods that would kill humans. So there, at that time, at the time of Christ coming in, there were two major works or books that were influential in the world at that time. One was Homer's Iliad. And the other one uh, was Virgil's Yes. Say that again. Thank you, because I would have mispronounced it. In the Iliad, the first lines of the Iliad start of sing of wrath. And in Virgil's writing, it talks about singing of arms. So what was the culture of the day? It was wrath and it was arms. Everybody knew it was a violent society. If you got on the wrong side of Caesar, it was not going to go well with you. And even to, you know, live in, to, to live in wherever we want to look at this, to, to live in the area around Ephesus prior to the, the, the conquering by the Romans, was to one day be living in a, in a city, a trade city, that was vibrant and full of life and full of people and all that was going on there. And then one day an army marches in and takes over. Kills who it needs to kill, subjugates everyone else, and now what was ours is now theirs. And we consider it merciful that they let me live here now and give everything to them as opposed to just killing me when they came on my property. I consider that a good day. So we're in this place of wrath and arms. So there's violence everywhere. The way that everything happens is by violence. The gods, as the Romans understood them and as the Greeks understood them, the gods would bring wrath on the earth. Humans acting as agents of the gods, would use wrath and violence as a way of controlling. So we're at this place. And in the middle of this world, there starts to be a theory that starts to arise, which is referred to as atonement. Now, I'm not going to address atonement today. But when we talk about atonement, it goes all the way back to this period. We are going to talk about atonement, but not today. So, why the crucifixion? 
I, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. If all that needed to happen was Jesus shed his blood and die, that could have happened a lot of different ways. Why the cross? Because in the Roman Empire at the day, the cross was the ultimate symbol of subjugation. Rome used the cross a lot. And it would not have been unusual uh, when... Um, ah, this name just went right out of my head. Brooks, I bet you know it. The... Um, the Roman, the Roman uh, gladiator that, was the, that started the insurrection, that's it. You guys are passing the test. I knew it. I just, I just was wanted to make sure you guys. Amen. Yes. <laughs> when, when Spartacus and his, his group were finally taken by the Romans, they lined up crosses all the way to Rome and they crucified thousands who hung on crosses. 6,000 for 60 miles. Exactly. I'm thankful because I don't. You just happen to be watching it. <laughs> Wasn't that Kurt Douglas? No, I was watching the Netflix Roman Empire. Oh, oh, I was watching Kurt Douglas. I think Hollywood's more accurate history, isn't it? <laughs> 6,000 for 60 miles. One every 100 feet. Yeah. Yeah, to die, to die on the cross was a long and painful death. It oftentimes took days to die. And while you're hanging there, and, and everybody that was crucified was always crucified naked, even though in the movie they weren't. That was probably the one inaccuracy in the whole movie. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but not the inaccuracy, but why, why you were... I'm just trying to make history interesting. We, I, we, we do have to get this foundation to, to fully talk, talk about what's, what, what was Christ trying to accomplish. So in that time, whether you saw one person crucified or you saw 6,000 crucified, you know the effect that that has on a person psychologically. Because the whole point of the cross was that the power at be, Rome, was letting everybody know, we have absolute control over you. And if you think you have any voice or any control, we'll demonstrate to you that you don't. And so you watch people dying for days naked on a cross where the birds of prey would come 
before they were dead, where the jeering people would hurl insults and all the things spit on them and throw stuff at them. It, w- it was all designed to be as humiliating as possible to the person dying and as psychologically damaging as possible to the observers and to the family. Because once Spartacus' army fell, everybody thought long and hard before they looked at that as an option again. It made its point. For those of us that have seen the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson probably did as good a job as anybody has done showing us the brutality of the cross. And I don't even think what he did compares, brings to life the fullness of what took place. The Roman orator Cicero said the most cruel and terrifying of penalties, speaking of the crucifixion. Origen says it's the most shameful form of death, namely the cross. So the crucifixion in the Roman world affected the social, the communal, and the political environment that everybody lived in. It's what it was designed to do. It forced everybody into a certain grid of thinking, into a certain way of seeing things, into a certain understanding of what it meant to even be alive. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul writing, with the, with the crucifixion in mind, Paul writing says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You know, when we, when we think about all that was happening, I, I, none of the disciples saw this coming, the crucifixion. You know, they were looking at Jesus. They, they believed he was the Messiah. And as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, but the view of the Messiah that they were looking at was at the very least, it was another King David. It was a liberator. If the Messiah is going to come, he's going to set us free. He's going to restore Israel to her glory. The promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled when, the, when Messiah comes. And so their expectation was very different than what happened the night of the Last Supper, and especially once the garden started, the garden scene started. Scripture doesn't give us a lot around the background of Judas. I honestly don't think Judas saw crucifixion 
when he did what he, was, what he did. I actually think Judas, as a zealot, he was for the liberation of Israel. That was his focus. And I can't help but think, and again, I, I can't give you this in Scripture. This is just summation, you know, me musing about this. But I can't help but think that when Judas did what he did, he was expecting Jesus to be the conquering hero. Even to the point that when they came into the garden, Peter takes out his sword. That's another topic for another day. Why in the world was Peter carrying a sword and did others have a sword? We don't know. We know Peter did. Probably they were all armed. Oh. Okay, anyway, Peter takes out his sword. What was Peter expecting? Now's the time. Now's the time. And Peter being Peter, I am going to draw first blood. To which Jesus replies, Peter, yeah, put that away. If you're going to live by that, you're going to die by that. And he puts the guy's ear back on, which I still find absolutely fascinating. I mean, you almost can see Jesus going, oh, you dropped something. Here, let me put it back on for you. <laughs> yeah. It's just the boys I run with. They're a little touchy, a little touchy. Sorry, sorry. So they weren't anticipating the cross. The cross, this, this would have been everything they thought that Messiah was going to bring. The cross was totally the antithesis of that. I mean, the fact that Jesus being a Jew, they wouldn't even have entertained the thought of a Jew being crucified. The shame of it, the, 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 you know, all that, that it would have brought. But Paul says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You know, the disciples were not unaware of battles and strategy and, and fights. So if Jesus had been stoned, if Jesus had been assassinated, if Jesus had been killed in battle, that would have made some level of sense to them. Not this. Not this cross. Not being taken the way he's been taken. And he didn't even resist. Why didn't he resist? But when we start reading through the New Testament, you start seeing how the early disciples are, are working their way through a new theology. They're starting to, to look at this event and going, what was, it, what was happening in this event? Why did it happen this way? And again, we all get 2,000 years of history coming to us. These guys are days after the event trying to sort it out. Trying to, what, what, what just happened? 
And you know, when, when the disciples, it's easy to make sport of it, I guess, or make light of it, but when the disciples were all hiding after Jesus had been crucified, darn right they were hiding. Because if they killed the leader, you know they're coming for the rest of us. And the only ones that could kind of interact and get around were the women because they would not have been treated the same way as the men. It was the men they were after. So, of course, the women could go to the, to the grave. They could kind of move around. They had to be careful, but they had a little more latitude. So, again, it's trying to, for us to start to see that in this, in this story that we hang our lives on called the gospel... It's an actual events that were taking place. And human beings like you and I found ourselves, found themselves in situations that totally was not what they were expecting. And yet they have to figure something out. They have to start to walk forward. What do what my next steps look like? If God's taken all these blocks up, out, and putting new blocks in, what do the new blocks look like? What are they based on? How do they function? How do I function? So we have Jesus. He's gone to the lowest point possible as a human being to, to give himself, to surrender himself to the cross. Two verses that I, I, I want to speak Spend some time on, and then we'll wrap this up. In John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I, I, I don't even know how to put into words or expression this verse. Because in light of everything the crucifixion was intended to be, shameful, it's intended to, to demoralize, it's to, you know, all the things that we've just talked about. Here's Pilate going, don't you know? I have all authority to either release you or crucify you. And keep in mind, and I think the Passion did a pretty good job of this, Jesus was not standing there looking like me at that moment. <laughs> he had already shed enough blood that any man would have died. It was a miracle that he's standing there. But not only that, in the midst of that, when Pilate says to him what he says, Jesus responds out of right mind and trumps Pilate's statement. And I can't help but think, if I was Pilate, when those words came to me, it would have cut me to the quick and scared the bejeebies out of me. And in a sense, from Pilate's, in Pilate's word, world, Jesus lets him off the hook. 
It's the one that delivered me to you that has the greater sin. I, I, that moment, that is such a powerful, powerful moment. Because what does it say? Rome, you built this execution called the cross and you've used it throughout the whole history of your kingdom to hold people down, to convince people that they have no voice, to subjugate them, to make any resistance to our rule, to Caesar, to make any resistance futile. And Jesus takes it away from them. I'll submit myself to the cross. I don't submit myself to you. You can't take my life. You can't do anything if it hadn't first been given to you. So he humbled himself to the cross. This next statement to me is just as powerful, still in John 19, but now verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. There's a couple words we can just read past them. To be crucified meant to hang for days in agony until your body finally succumbed to the torture it had been that was being inflicted on it. Except that Jesus said, this cross, it can't kill me. I give my life. And not only do I give it, but when I breathe my last unseen world and seen world, let everybody hear my words. It is finished. And the victory of the cross is still resonating today And those words are still resonating today. And those words have resonated in every one of our hearts at some point in time when Jesus introduced himself to us. And we were born again. We stepped into his likeness. And yeah, we're still working out things. Yes, we're at 30, 60, or (laughs) 54.789. Wherever we're at, we're still in process. But the words of Jesus are still absolutely true. It is finished. They couldn't put him on the cross. They couldn't keep him on the cross. So when we look at the cross, I, I, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I, 
I kind of, I left that day, as I do every time, thinking about what I said and how much trouble I might get myself into for things that I say. And, um, um, but I, I was looking back and I, and I felt like I might have made it sound like the crucifixion wasn't, imp- uh, wasn't as important as an event as the resurrection. And that's not really what I was trying to say. The cross, the crucifixion, is absolutely important. It is the, the, the end of something. And we're going to, in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at the more particulars of it. But it, so the, the crucifixion is absolutely important. You can't get the resurrection without something dying. But in the, in the minds of the early church, it was the resurrection that had now set this whole thing, which at that point was just called the way, had set this whole thing apart because there was a resurrection. Anybody can die, and all do. But it's the empty grave that presents the problem. For some. And so that's where we are. If I'm going to be, if my vocation is to be an imager of Christ and to share the gospel with those that are around me, it has to start from the very core foundation of the cross. And we need not pull away from the grotesque part of the cross and then sterilize it and just try to make it neat and clean. It wasn't neat and clean. Jesus humbled himself, despising the shame. That was the other thing with the cross. For those that were crucified, it was to die in shame. I mean, they've stripped you naked. They've beat you. They've tied you on this device, and they've put you up for public display until you die. It was designed to bring the greatest shame possible, but Jesus despised the shame. He took the cross, but not the shame. So that we can be free from shame regardless of the spectacle any of us might be from time to time. We don't have to take the shame. Okay, I think that's enough for today. feels good to talk about the basics. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for today. For those that are watching us through media, we bless you. If any of you are dealing with with issues of sickness or whatever, we just release healing to your bodies. 
and the fullness of Christ at work in your heart that you can be the very best imager of him that he's intended you to be. Lord, for this whole company of people that we call the house, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you continue to lead us and shape us and conform us and use us. Lord, we thank you that in this season that we find ourselves in as a nation and as for us as a church, that we are not without hope and that you are giving us keys to image you well in this season so that the world might know. One, that we love each other. And two, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. We give you all glory. Amen.